This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Luke van Middler. Luke van Middler is a historian and political theorist and well known to many people now as a former speechwriter and advisor to the President of the European Council from 2010 to 2015. His new book is called Pandemonium Saving Europe. Welcome to the podcast, Luke. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure. Right. Well, we've done this before. We did a podcast about your previous book, um, Alarms and Excursions. So this is a treat to be coming back a sec- on a second occasion. Um, obviously, we're going to talk about the pandemic, uh, which is the f- main focus of your book, and how the EU, both the, the European Commission on the one hand and the European Member States on the other, handled the, the pandemic crisis and is still handling the pandemic crisis. But before we do that, I'd like to follow, in a sense, the, in effect, the, the logic and the sequence of your book, because you're very good at analyzing from a very constructive, not a negative, uh, destructive uh, perspective, how the the EU has worked since its inception and how it is evolving. And we'll talk in a second about your your concepts of of rules politics and events politics and how these two uh, sort of coexist up to a point. So I want to start with a quote, just to get our readers into the mood. Um, I quote as follows from your book. The strategy of undermining drama and conflict and keeping it out of the picture proved effective. This is the the origins of the EU, obviously. But this approach came at the price of a steady erosion of public and political powers of persuasion. The right to speak about Europe fell to economists, lawyers and EU ideologues who addressed themselves not to citizens, but to stakeholders. With their jargon, acronyms and self-congratulation, they drove even the most interested members of the public to distraction. And you go on to say this is awkward because the metamorphosis of rules politics into events politics demands not just practical adroitness, but open communication with the assembled public. So let's go. That's, that's a great way maybe to introduce you, you to explain to me and our listeners what you mean by rules politics and then moving on to events politics. Well, basically, Paul, what I'm, what I'm saying there is that the EU was initially built to to build a, uh, a common market, right? And it did so thanks to legislation, uh, common rules. And that was a rather technical job to be done, which required expertise, and for which you could also take a lot of time to, to weave together, to intertwine various economic and industrial interests uh, between member states, uh, between various groups and, uh, and stakeholders, etc. So uh, I think that was a, a great success, obviously, build a continental market. Um, but it also brought with it, with it some, some drawbacks. And I think that comes out clearest with the factor of time, because the, the rule, rule politics factory is basically a, a patient and very careful uh, body. Huh? Um, you can take years, as you know well, and Paul, and many of your listeners too, uh, between a commission, uh, green paper, white paper, uh, trialogues, commission, etc., until one day you end up in the uh, most sacred of all uh, papers, the uh, official journal, right, of the right. <laughs> But when we're talking about the European Union as a club of states dealing with 
crises, with threats, with danger. It is something completely different. It's a different ball game. It's a different type of politics because there, in many cases, speed is of the essence. Right? The speed uh, to react, to take decisions, to avoid uh, collapse of the banking system because 2008 is a bit where in my chronology, this new type of politics really uh, starts to be felt as, as necessary. Euro crisis, migration, um, etc. And now, and now the pandemic. So that type of politics, as I said, does not only require a more, more speed of action, leads to sometimes to improvisation, uh, action in times of, of deep uncertainty, but it also requires, and that's what your quote was about, and, and thanks for uh, reading <laughs> it out, uh, even if it was a bit, bit harsh, but it, it's really dear to my thinking. It, it requires a different relationship with the public, uh, with, uh, with people, with, with citizens. Whereas for rules politics, it was fine that this was just done mainly among experts and, and stakeholders. Huh? These were the golden days of what political scientists about EU call the permissive consensus, huh? basically the polite indifference of the electorates to what was being done in Brussels as long uh, as it uh, was more or less okay and, and dealt with technocratic uh, things and rules and uh, VAT tariffs and things like that. But that approach of politics taking place in the wings, as it were, is no longer appropriate at all. When the decisions you are taking collectively touch upon such fundamental matters as sovereignty at external borders, identity uh, issues, and also uh, large sums of money, as in the rescue packages in the financial crisis, or, or even matters of war and peace, as in our relations with Russia. These are matters which really where political leaders have to engage with their Electorate, electorates to convince them to, as I say in that quote, succinctly find another language as well. Huh? Yeah. Because maybe take the migration, migration crisis as, a, as an example. This was utterly divisive within almost all European societies and also between member states, as you know. Yeah. And when you have half of the people wanting open borders, and the other half asking for closed borders, huh? you're not going to solve it with um, some technocratic fudge uh, or, or a compromise about which you, you negotiate. It will require uh, political judgment and, and decisions and therefore also a different way of communicating, of reaching out to the public, of telling uh, stories, building arguments, etc. Right. Well, I remember the, the subtitle of your previous book uh, was about Europe, which improvises, L'Europe qui improvise. And I know you're, you're very keen to, to explain to people that you're, the EU has to move and is moving towards as, as much as a, a crisis management me mechanism as, as, as the old rules-based and rules-driven system you've just been explaining. And again, in the book, you, again, we, I promise we will move on to the pandemic in a second. But before we do, you do talk about, much about the the, the, the European project as a future step, always set into the future, we're not quite there yet, or something hasn't quite happened, but it will soon, uh, which is interesting. You talk about the phrase, the world, the Brussels world is almost living on credit, is it, to use your phrase. And the 
alongside that promise of the future, you, you go on to talk about the, a number of taboos, and I'll listen for the sake of our listeners. The, a taboo number one, you, there's no, you should not appeal to national interests. Taboo number two, differences between member states. And I'm going to come back to that one in particular. Taboo number three, asking about the location of the EU's government. And taboo number four, talking about where are Europe's borders located. Now, taboo number two, you, you go on to say that, and it's, it's very opposite now, not just in the context of the pandemic, but also the rule of law debate and so many other debates. And with the upcoming presidency of, of France, for reasons which become evident, again, one more quote, and I'll stop quoting you back. You say in the book, everyone knows that France has more power at the negotiating table than Luxembourg, but you must not say so. Do you think that is still the case, that, um, that we just don't say it out loud, but we obviously are very much aware that member states are not equal? That's a, I know it's a big taboo, but it, it needs to be maybe more and more recognized that member states are not equal. I think it needs to be recognized because otherwise, at some point, the, the whole language you use to speak about the European Union is, is no longer uh, credible. No? But maybe on, on, different, on, on this specific taboo, obviously, there is a difference between equality before the law, right. which, is, which is essential. Yeah. And, and, and which, of course, is also why this taboo was there. Uh, let's say in the immediate post-war uh, EU uh, integration, because it was all a legal and, 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 and rulemaking enterprise. But what we now see is the European Union also not just regulating, but also doing things, mm -hmm. acting. Uh, we have border guards at external borders, um, police missions since 10, 12 years as well, things like that. And in that kind of operation, it does matter what a member state is capable of doing and what not. And uh, in, indeed, also the, the issue of, of, of values has, has become more important. And I think if um, we continue hiding those differences between a, a veal of legal equality, we can no longer really make sense uh, of, 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 of European uh, politics. So in a way, the taboo has served its function, but it is, it's outdated now, and so are some of the others. Okay, well, let's move on then to the pandemic, which is, of course, the main focus of your, of your new book. And as you say, unlike the previous crises, uh, uh, challenging Europe, banking euro crisis, Ukraine, migration, Brexit, and Trump, this is, the, uh, again, your words, a direct physical threat to the bodies of all the citizens without distinction. And you ask the question, is disappointment or even bitterness regarding the European approach justified? What is your answer to that question? I mean, uh, how did the EU, whether it's at the European Commission level or the member state level, in your judgment, handle the pandemic? Well, I think the initial answer was, was indeed very weak and, and, and disappoint, disappointing. It was a lack of inaction or reluctance to act on the side of the EU institutions, hiding in a way behind the, the, the legal or, or institutional fact that public health was not an EU competence. Right. And on the side of member states, a lot of, of, of egotism, uh, uh, hoarding your own masks, uh, PPA material, etc., for your own citizens, uh, which uh, disappointed many and which led to really a moment of, of, of bitterness huh? um, in February, March 2020. I think most of all it has been yeah. felt in Italy which obviously was at the center of the outbreak, northern Italy, uh, Lombardy, which asked for help to EU partners and received none uh, in the first weeks when it really mattered. So the initial response was very weak, uh, and 
but then again, there also is, and that's fascinating, a, a real turnaround and mm. very quickly, I would say, also compared to some, some previous crises and, and disruptions, in the sense that by the summer, uh, the European Union has taken two very far-reaching decisions to come to terms with the pandemic. I'm referring, on the one hand, obviously, to the Corona Recovery Fund, which right. was decided in July 2020 uh, by leaders in the European Council. Of course, then some details had to be solved, but the principle stood. Huh? 750 billion yeah. recovery money. It's uh, almost as big as, as the EU seven-year budget. So, and a lot of implications as well as, as listeners know, on the financial and economic uh, integration sphere. Yeah. But there was a second decision, in a way, almost as far-reaching, or at least maybe even more surprising, in light of the weak public health competencies. And that was a decision taken in, in uh, June 2020, so three, four months after the outbreak, for the EU Commission to purchase the vaccines for all EU citizens. So here we were really in the darkest of moments, um, still probably at the end of the first lockdown, right? And notwithstanding, and not always convincing operation by the, by the Commission in the field of public health in these early months, government leaders entrusted mm. the von der Leyen Commission to, to buy vaccines. How do, um, how do you, so interrupt you, how do you explain this turnaround? You said at the beginning uh, member states acted clearly very selfishly. Maybe that is to be uh, understood up to a point because uh, we're all panicking and worrying about this new thing called the pandemic. Uh, so why would you explain that the, the change of heart, the change of, of, of approach of member states and the, and the European Commission? What was really uh, new in this, in this pandemic is that the public wanted Europe to act. There was a, a public outcry, right. in particular from, from Italy, then Spain and, and, and other countries as well, that Europe had to do something. Now, I'm not saying this was very articulate about who should do what and whether it was Brussels or, or Berlin, Paris or the member states, but in a way, the, the crisis was so felt as so threatening to everybody, so big, also... Uh, against uh, immediately the, the backdrop of big geopolitical fights, China, the US, about um, Europe felt alone. It was clear it, this was not something one member state could solve. So there was really a kind of public awareness that Europe had to do something. Um, so you, you make also the point that you talk about the competence of uh, or the lack of competence, to be precise, in the EU treaties of, of, of public health, obviously. Uh, and you make the, the point in the book also that, of course, that means that health ministers uh, of the EU member states don't, don't meet that often, unlike finance ministers who meet very regularly, monthly, if not more than that. Do you think that lack of personal knowledge of each other and uh, an acquaintanceship with each other uh, played a role in, in delays in forging a, a common approach to the crisis? Yeah, I think these kind of personal relationships uh, are important. And it, it's just, and it's also normal because public health is indeed mainly dealt with uh, by national governments, if not regional and, and, and local authorities. So this is a, a club of, of ministers who hardly know each other. And all of a sudden they, they had to uh, work 
uh, together. And that, that took more time in a way to, to set it all up than, than for more well-oiled bodies like finance ministers or uh, foreign ministers. But also, I think the, um, also in the commission, the, um, the health department underestimated the, the forces with which it was dealing, and including financial and economic forces. Here I'm referring um, on the one hand to the vaccine purchase, mm. uh, which was not a smooth uh, ride, but also early on in the, in the pandemic, and this has not been so much reported, when right after that very bitter moment of, of, of disunity, uh, mask hoarding, etc., the commission had the idea in itself, a good idea, okay, well, we will try and buy ourselves for member states who need it, a protective gear. So what did the commission do? Basically acting via public procurement, huh? putting an ad in the newspaper, as it were, please, uh, are there any com companies out there producing uh, mouth masks, face masks in particular? But not a single company reacted uh, at the first public procurement. And then 10 days later or so, uh, the von der Leyen... Do, 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 you know do you know why there was no res response from, the, from well, the private sector? That's exactly the question to ask, and they should have asked themselves <laughs> as well. Because basically, at that point in time, we're talking late February, early March, there was no market economy anymore for medical right. products, for, for those kind of products. It yeah. was what I would call with a, with a classic term, a war economy. Mm. That is to say that it was not only at that point the price mechanism, huh, to mm. talk technically, uh, mm. which determined who gets what, but it was really a matter also of power relations, of networks, mm. of national states uh, seizing uh, production. Uh, Trump tried to force, uh, I think it was General Motors, to produce yeah, yeah. Uh, ventilators invoking uh, an uh, a U.S. act from the time of the Korea War, uh, underlining indeed this 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 moment of of, of crisis, emergency, even warlike situation, where a public procurement is just not good enough. And in a way, the same happened to some extent again when the Commission acquired this vaccine uh, mandate, and when it also relied to a rather large extent uh, on, on on the price mechanism and not enough on securing product production and on speed, uh, which was a, to some extent a, a costly mistake in terms of, of, of lives and also in terms of, of finances of, of a longer lockdown early 2021. So I hope these lessons will be uh, taken on board next time around. And so when you are in such an emergency, uh, it needs really gearing up uh, the, uh, the way you, you approach uh, such matters. Well, well, here we are at the end of October 2021 now, uh, 20 months or whatever since the pandemic first first struck us. I mean, are you making the case now that there is no turning back? We have we have reached a, a, a new stage. You say, I said I would not quote you anymore, but I can't resist uh, the temptation. You say in the book, we will not understand the new Europe as long as we continue to look through the lens of the old. That's obviously the rules-based thing. Metamorphosis uh, whether we like it or not. So what, what do you mean by that? What is this new Europe you're talking about? Well, maybe uh, at this point I should also add a nuance. I'm not saying that Europe is going straightly from the old rule politics to doing only events politics. No, no. 
what I'm saying is not we're going from A to B, but we're, we are going or we should be going from A to A plus B. Right. Because obviously Europe still needs, continues yeah. to need the, the machinery of rulemaking policies as a key to creating economic predictability and, 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 and security on the market building front. So I don't want to throw that away. I'm just no. saying that we also, alongside that, yeah. need to be able to deal with sudden threats. Um, they, sometimes they come, uh, let's say, from flaws in, in our own projects, like with the euro. There can also be external threats, issues with Russia, with Turkey, yeah. um, with the US even, which need a faster response. And I'm saying if the European Union is, is serious about, about such matters and about our will to collectively defend our way of life uh, on this space of planet Earth, um, which we happen to, uh, to inhabit, um, we, need, we need more of that kind of politics and we need to let go, indeed, as you mentioned earlier, some of these taboos. We need to think about our external borders. Mm. Uh, we need to be less naive and making a difference in trade and make a difference uh, between, to some extent, our internal rules for the internal market, which should remain as open, as free and, and, and uh, as possible, and the way we deal with international trade with the rest of the world. And many of these things, of course, uh, have been set into motion, including by EU institutions in, uh, in the past years, probably since 2016, uh, is, a, is a turnaround of, of, of that awareness of, of some strategic vulnerabilities. Um, 2016, the year of Brexit, Trump, but also of some very high profile China takeovers in, in, in German industry. So there was a, a real uh, sudden awareness there. And I think the pandemic has really uh, increased uh, those trends, has, has made uh, Europe's geopolitical vulnerability or at some point even almost a solitude mm. uh, in the world very visible, not only to people like you and me who follow this for, for our daily bread, but also to the public at large. Yeah. I think we shouldn't underestimate in particular how uh, public opinion on, on, on China uh, is, sh is shifting uh, very uh, rapidly. We're coming to the end of our conversation, unfortunately, so that, that you're, you're teeing up perfectly the last part of our conversation, Luke. You're, the final chapter in your book is called Geopolitics Between China and the United States. In that short title, there's quite a lot there to unpack. I mean, you're suggesting just now that, you know, this vulnerability of, of Europe uh, in, in the geopolitical world we're all living in, but also, as you know, as well as I do, the EU has great aspirations, some would say rather naive aspirations to be uh, serious, be taken as a serious geopolitical player. And I want in the last few minutes of this chat, Luke, to get more of your take on how you think that the European Union, as opposed to the United States, should, should handle China. Uh, does, should it follow lock, stock and barrel, more or less what the Biden administration wants it to do? Or is it, is it feasible, doable for the EU to have its own strategy or own, at least own position in its dealings with China? I think it's important for the EU to have its own uh, position and to not be forced automatically by the US to do what the US wants or prefers to do. Right. Of course, in the bigger scheme of things, it's very clear to me as well 
that Europe is closer to America than to China in terms of our values and where we stand in the world as democracies and all the rest of it. I will not go into the future of American democracy. It's, it's a topic for another podcast. But it is important, I think, for us to realize, and that's another of these taboo words, that as Europeans, we also have interests, mm. including geographic interests, mm. which are different from those of the US. Mm. The US is a Pacific power, wants to be. We are not. We, in Europe, we have to deal with what happens on the other side of the Mediterranean, the Middle East, and Africa. And things happening there impact us directly. So what, uh, uh, what I see in the, in the transatlantic relationship is that because of the emphasis historically and rhetorically and for good reasons on our shared values and what we have lived together since 1945, if not 1918, 1989, all these glorious moments <laughs> of being shoulder to shoulder uh, defending freedom, huh? We yeah. tend to forget or, or we forget to also bring out these uh, various interests. And I think Europe is big enough with um, the European Union joint member states to not become like Australia, uh, where, which had to decide a month ago, more or less, that it was no longer possible to hedge China for the economy and the US for security. And it basically has become now officially and explicitly a vessel of the United States. And uh, that is not a future which I would uh, recommend for the European Union as a whole. Now, maybe one single concluding word on the, the irony surrounding this, this whole idea of strategic autonomy. Yeah. Obviously, it's, it's easy to make fun of uh, EU ambitions in the military domain, uh, which will not materialize any, anytime soon. But I think it, it would be helpful for the debate to separate that hardcore security military issue from the wider mm. uh, economic security issues, the industry, uh, well, there's, there's a lot of talk these days about semiconductors and those kind of issues where the EU really has uh, not only interests to defend, but also the ways and means uh, to do so. And I think a, a, a sound transatlantic relationship would leave space for a conversation, for a dialogue between Europe and the US as partners on, on such issues and cannot just be a one-way street of the US telling us what to do because that, that, that will be uh, relate, that will create tensions, I think. Okay, well, we have to leave it there. Luke van Middler, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul. It was a pleasure as always.